Hey everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Eugene Fuchsman, a software pioneer and one of the first hires at WhatsApp. Today, we're going to talk about Eugene's experiences inside the WhatsApp rocket ship. But before we get to that, Eugene, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I also have to say happy birthday. Yeah, that's amazing talking to you on my birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Lucky us. Okay, well, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from and what you studied. I grew up in uh, Russia, in St. Petersburg. I was trained as a mathematician, not even as a computer scientist. And I have switched towards computers probably last couple of years in college and have worked as an engineer for, for many years as a software engineer. I started back in Russia. I moved here in 99 and I worked here in different industries for the next almost 20 years. When did you move to Silicon Valley? So I landed in Silicon Valley the first day when I came here. That was in August 99, exactly 21 years ago. Let's talk about WhatsApp because you were one of the, it's kind of a select group. I know you guys didn't have a huge number of employees. So tell me about how that got started. How did you meet uh, Jan Kuhn, the co-founder of WhatsApp? We were in a, the same social circles, kind of this Russian-speaking social group. We played poker together and we connected on, on, on a social level before he hired me as an engineer. And I have seen WhatsApp actually from the very early days, even before I became part of that. And I saw that starting as a non-messenger initially. It was not a messenger product. And I saw that pivot into messaging and getting all this early success. And I actually joined in the late 2010 when the company was already pretty unstoppable, I should say. So it sounds like you'd been in the Bay Area for a while. I'm a little bit curious, you know, where had you worked before joining WhatsApp? I had three jobs before I joined WhatsApp, three jobs in Bay Area. The first one was short stint at the company called Parametric Technology, working on the mechanical design software and it's a very different work, but it was still software engineering, interesting problems. And then I spent the next 10 years working at the test and measurement industry, working for two different companies that were creating essentially protocol analyzer products for different high-speed hardware interconnects like USB, like Firewire, like PCI Express, like storage technologies, Serialty, and SATA. And I did software for those projects, but those uh, products were really hardware heavy. We would be calling them hardware products with the software support. So after some time in that industry, I really wanted to switch to the internet industry and work for one of these big name companies that surrounded me. I lived in Mountain View, a couple of miles from the Google headquarters, and it bugged me that I lived that close and had nothing to do with that industry. So I really wanted that switch. So you wanted to get into the software industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about WhatsApp was doing at that time when you were considering joining? So WhatsApp was, depending on how you count, six to 10 people. We didn't have an office. We rented 
four or six cubicles in an open space that was a sublet from Evernote. Mm-hmm. Evernote occupied half of the building. They leased the other half to small companies. It was a big open space with a whole bunch of cubicles there and a whole bunch of companies kind of sharing the space. So we were one of those companies. And uh, by the time I joined, there were six people in the office and three or four remote. So that was very, 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 very small company. We would work out of the office. We would go have lunch in downtown Mountain View. We would hear the sound of the train passing by because it was very close to the railroad. Right. I hear the same train, Caltrain at nights. So how confident were you in joining a, a small startup? You know, I imagine you probably had multiple places you could have gone to. Were you set on joining a startup? Did you consider at that time going to a bigger tech company? You know, you mentioned Google. Did you apply there or was it always uh, going to be a startup? I was actually ready to apply to Google, Facebook. I prepared my resume and I was about to start sending it out. And I really envisioned big company as a good place to come and learn, you know, the secrets of this trade. And that's where Jan convinced me to join. It was not very obvious. Now, looking back, everybody will tell you that I should have joined. But back then, it was not that obvious, honestly. Because the company was small, the idea that you're working on some text messaging app was a little bit ridiculous. Because if you think about timing, that was 2010. That was the time where the messengers considered to be the old ancient story. It's been 10 years since ICQ sold themselves to AOL. There were a whole bunch of messengers around. The idea that you need to do another one, and for mobile phones... Also, mobile phones were not that understood as the next big thing. I mean, some people did understand that. Jan Kuhn, for instance, very clearly understood that, but not everybody yet. So to throw away a resemblance of a career that I had in in a previous industry where I spent 10 years and to switch to a small startup creating a text messaging application, some of my friends were looking at me as if I had gone crazy. It was not a very obvious choice. So I'm imagining this small office, you said you were sharing it with other companies, probably small as well. Can you describe what that environment was like? What was the culture? What was the values like at that time when it was such a small company with few people? We managed to keep a pretty unique culture. If you think about this, there were a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that would go a route of some publicity, some jumping from TechCrunch to whatever to get exposure and fight for customers, to jump through all the hoops in terms of creating very quirky work environment and office full of things that cause ADD. We were completely opposite. We were super focused on work. There was very little or or very quiet, at least, conversations in the office. A lot of things happened on messengers and on chat because we had some people who were remote. It was very quiet. And that, by the way, stayed like that for a pretty long time. And years later, when people would come in, they would see much bigger by then open space. And it was very quiet. (laughs) Some people really freaked out a little bit because you walk into a room that big where 50, 60 people are in, you expect that to be some level of noise. And we always managed to keep it relatively quiet and uh, very, very focused. It was very small team. We managed to to keep very small team for many, many, many years. 
And the only way you can continue running a huge service with a small team is that everybody is super focused. So that was number one impression that I got after I joined. And it remained like that throughout my years there. The number one thing is focus. I'll always focus on work. That was the motto. We, we had this focus is a new F word slogan around the office. That was our F word. I love that. Clearly, you guys got your work done. You you built an amazing product that eventually got bought. So your maybe counterintuitive approach to the to the regular big, loud Silicon Valley startups it seems to have worked. I'm curious. Next, can you tell me about what what it was you were brought in to do in the first place? I was hired together with uh, another person who we we started the same day. We were the first two server engineers that the founders hired. Mm -hmm. Now, both founders are very technical. They were engineers uh, at Yahoo before they started WhatsApp. So they had a lot of experience writing server code and running servers. So up to a certain point, they didn't need any help. But obviously, at some point, there was too much work to do on on all fronts. So they decided to expand and, and, and hired first two server engineers. And that was us. And we had pretty easily formulated task. We had to sustain the growth because the company was already on, on a crazy trajectory of the acquiring new users. And the these new users brought a lot of scalability challenges. So our task was to essentially modify the server and, and make sure that we sustain the growth, which was a kind of interesting task because we were using the open source product. The, the, the server code was started with the open source product. And unfortunately, that open source product was designed in such a way that it has the very clear scalability issues. You, we could not add more hardware to solve our problems because because of certain software configuration, the, the, the adding more hardware was actually harmful, not helpful. So our number one task was to get us out of that really bad situation and get us to the point where we can grow and can expand and can sustain the growth of users. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of numbers to back up that story. So by the end of 2010, which is two months after I started, we had about 10 million users and by the end of 2011, we had about 100 million users. So that's a 10x growth in one year and a 10x growth from already high baseline. That was a very, very interesting exercise in scaling. We had to scale extremely fast. We were knocking out bottleneck after after bottleneck. It was literally, let's work on this. Once we figure out how, how to get through one certain bottleneck, you take a 15 minutes coffee break and, and you start with the next. That was literally like that. But that was an ama- amazing experience. I learned so much from this and I um, I got to, to experience the growth that is pretty rare for anybody to, to handle. And especially it's pretty rare to handle with such a small team. I think by the end of 2011, we had maybe four people working on servers plus two founders who were actually very, very involved as well. So maybe maybe six people doing everything on the infrastructure side for 100 million users. That's a that's a great number of users to handle and a lot of traffic and a lot of messages. We, we did everything ourselves. We did coding and, and testing and deployments and our phones would beep in the middle of the night if things break. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like an elite club. I, I doubt many have really gone through growth like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about the tech stack that you guys were using? Gladly. First of all, let, let me state this. I was the only person in this early infrastructure group 
who did not come from Yahoo. So everybody else was more or less the crowd that that knew each other back from Yahoo days. And Yahoo famously used FreeBSD as their operating system of choice for their servers. So that naturally came to WhatsApp as well. So we used FreeBSD, machines running FreeBSD operating system. The machines themselves were also unconventionally very big and very heavy. While the whole industry was shifting toward having large amount of small machines and treating them as expendable resources, we were going the opposite way. We were using huge, super heavy machines with almost terabyte of memory, with uh, a lot of processors and cores. Those were monsters that could handle a lot of users on a single machine. So FreeBSD really helped with that because FreeBSD is really good at handling a lot of connections. And uh, on top of FreeBSD, we were running our application written in Erlang. Now, Erlang is pretty unknown language among the mainstream, but it really worked really well for us. That was the language designed by Ericsson about 35 years ago. That was designed for communication switches. Mm. So originally, that's very relevant to the kind of applications that we were running, you know, dealing with a lot of users, talking with a lot of other users. Mm. And uh, it had a few very interesting features that allowed us to move really, really fast. So that was that was one of the intuitive guesses, I would say, by Jan in the early days. That was his personal choice. He chose it when he was there by himself. And that was a great choice. It saved us a lot of headaches down the road. One of the reasons we were able to iterate as fast as we did was because of that choice. So that's a, that's a great intuitive guess. Again, counterintuitive to use a lesser known programming language than to go with something popular that might have even attracted more developers. Do you have any doubts about that using Erlang early on? When I came over, I came from the background as a C++ engineer. And C++ engineers usually think of C++ as the king of languages and everything else is a toy language that people in high school should be using. I was sort of like that as well. I came in with this lot of ignorance. It took me some time to really master Erlang. But I should say that it took me very short time to fall in love with that. It, it was surprisingly natural and organic to, to, to start using it. So you're right, though, in terms of hiring, that was not very easy. We couldn't find people who knew Erlang. I think out of the early people in the infrastructure group, we only had one person who had previous knowledge of Erlang. Everybody else essentially was hired as a generalist and learned on the job. So yes, it was very unconventional. And by the way, in an adjacent story, around the same time, Facebook, before even they knew about us, they were also experimenting with Erlang. And they also took Erlang as their language of choice for their early chat feature. And somehow they drifted away from that, given they had a lot of people already working for the company and it was very tempting to just switch everything to C++ and, and kind, of, kind of step into the comfort zone. Whereas for us, we thought that we need to persevere and go through and figure out how to deal with those some of those issues that Erlang had. And we managed to tweak and tune the virtual machine quite a bit and achieve amazing results with Erlang. I think our record was 3.3 million connections on a single server. So that means 3.3 million TCP stateful connections and at the same time, which is insane. That means that if you have 300 
million users connected, which is almost the top of even today's world. How many users are connected at the same time? You only need 100 machines if you do it like that. So that was pretty amazing. We then kind of lowered, we didn't push those limits that much, but we always try to optimize the stack as much as we could to squeeze every last bit of performance out of those machines. Because one of the leading thoughts about how we build this whole infrastructure and the engineering group around it is that complexity and the cost of management of the infrastructure grows with the number of machines, not with the number of cores. So if you have only a few hundred machines, you can have your engineering group completely manage it. You don't need to have special operations department, tons of automation. You don't need all of that. You can really use shell access and and have your engineer just deploy things manually almost. This is what we did for quite, quite a long time. So the thinking was, if we can keep the fleet small, then we're going to be very, very efficient. We're going to have small team. It's going to be easy to decide things quickly, to move quickly, to resolve problems quickly. And we managed to do that for quite quite a long time. I'm super proud of that. And we, and in order for you to really do that, you need to be able to run a lot of traffic and a lot of users on each of those machines. So that's why huge machines, a lot of memory, a lot of cores, a lot of network interfaces, and many, many user connections per, per machine. That allows you to have small footprint overall. That was pretty unconventional, but it worked for a long time. Incredible. So it sounds like pound for pound, you know, your machines were some of the most efficient. Were there any other key product decisions that were made early on that you think led to the great success that you had at WhatsApp? Definitely. And I would not be honest if I said that the success of WhatsApp lies entirely on on how well infrastructure was running. I think a lot of uh, the success really comes from from the product decisions Mm -hmm. and from how easy the product was for for people. So uh, let me name a couple of things that I think were were absolutely crucial for, for success. So number one is using of a phone number as a username. Again, this is something that pretty obvious today. Everybody is doing it. Everybody did it after WhatsApp did it. Mm-hmm. But WhatsApp was the first or, or at least one of the first to figure it out. The insight is that we already have a social network in our phones. It's called address book. Just nobody thinks of it as a social network. But if you think about this, if you treat you know me having you in an address book as a directional edge of a graph, then it really becomes a huge graph. So when you use phone numbers and address book as a friend discovery mechanism, you get great opportunity to skip the whole friend discovery, which if you remember some of the early messengers, that was absolutely necessary step because you register, you get in. Okay, now what? Now you have to find who you message and how you message them. So you start exchanging your handles or your tokens or whatever they were called, right? In order to find find people to talk to. Whereas for us, that's it. You're, the people you talk to are a subset of your existing address book. So that, that was one major hurdle that we overcame for help our users overcame, friend discovery. And another one is when you use the phone number and you verify it with the SMS message on your phone, you skip another great complexity, which is username and password. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I both live in Silicon Valley, so we probably don't think of username and password as 
super complex step. But if you think about a lot of non-technical people around the world, for them, it's very complex because usernames get forgotten. Passwords get forgotten. You need to verify that by email. Then you need to organize, I forgot my password feature. And then you have to have your customer support deal with that. And if you want to grow to hundreds of millions of users, that's going to be a significant part of your customer support effort. So the second you can get away from all of this and just verify your phone number, and everybody knows knows their phone number. Even grandmother who is not technical at all, she knows her her phone number, right? So that's very, very easy to use. And that's another great product decision that really led to success. And coming back to this idea of us competing with the earlier messengers, all these messengers did have mobile products as well. Yahoo Messenger, MSN, all of them had the mobile presence. But that presence was so heavily dependent on the concepts from the desktop world including usernames and passwords, that they had really hard time attracting a lot of people. Whereas we, as the mobile-only product, were very easy to jump on for a lot of people. The early formulated idea of what we are was drop-in replacement of the SMS app, right? We are SMS that doesn't require cellular connection. We are SMS app that can work over Wi-Fi and the internet. Mm -hmm. So let's completely replicate that experience, right? Let's not introduce anything super new to the people so that people can jump on a familiar thing. And then obviously we started adding other cool features and we obviously bypassed SMS on all fronts. SMS is a horrible way to message people, if you ask me today. But Mm -hmm. that was a very good baseline for the company to start and start offering service that is similar, maybe a little bit better than what already exists. So yeah, that simplicity was extremely important. We, we started getting people who would never even think of messaging. They would, they would be continue calling each other if it wasn't for WhatsApp. That, that's an amazing point. You guys were able to take down all those barriers to entry, so much so that in 2010, 2011, when I actually downloaded WhatsApp, I remember I was in high school and I was looking through it. I think I might have needed it to communicate among my teammates or something. And I was sort of sitting there scratching my head like, why would I, I don't even understand. What is this? Why would I use this? It looks just like my messenger. But like you said, we're in this bubble of Silicon Valley. I'm so used to messaging and and that sort of thing that I had no idea how this could be useful for people all over the world. So I I actually remember looking at your application and, and thinking, you know, what's the difference? So that's so cool. So I think a huge part of your success was, like you said, replicating those recognizable patterns, making it so the barriers to entry were so low that people were really able to download your application and start using it immediately. Can you tell me about your user growth? Where did you see more users in in iOS or Android? We started with only iOS product. The company started in 2009. The Android product and Android phones that were kind of okay to work with WhatsApp only showed up much, much later. I think, I don't remember exactly when, but I think it was late 2009 or maybe early 2010 when the Android 2.0 came out. And that was the first version of Android that had push notifications. And without push notifications, you cannot really create a instant messaging product because the whole point was that we're replacing sms sms always arrives almost right away when it works but the point is that it's pretty immediate and the only way to do that over internet is if you have push notification system so android was a little bit behind apple on doing that so we started with apple 
And Apple was obviously super hot and, and every cool kid around the planet was trying to get iPhone. So for the longest time, that was just iPhone. And out of those 10 million people, users that were our users, as I mentioned, around the time I joined, I think good, maybe 80% were iPhone. That was the early, early days. Actually, I should mention the other thing. In parallel to this, we started developing WhatsApp for platforms that now might not even remember this little known co company called Nokia and another little known company called Blackberry, yeah. which kids today probably don't even remember what it is. But in 2010, Nokia absolutely dominated the world. You could hardly call their products smartphone. They had few attempts to create something modern and, and competitive to Apple and almost all of them failed. But you should just understand how prevalent Nokia was. Nokia was used by billions of people around the world. Entire continent of Africa was exclusively Nokia phones, like not a single other phone there. That was a very important step for us to really try to tackle that audience and to try to tackle the huge number of people who used Nokia and uh, BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. So that was also a big part of success. We didn't just create a product for the bubble of Silicon Valley, and everybody in Silicon Valley was able to afford an iPhone. If we were only working for them, we would probably not be as successful, but we really worked super hard to make a product for Nokia and we had product for two different Nokia operating systems and we had products for two different BlackBerry systems and that was a huge part of our success. Tell me more about that decision. Did you? How did you decide we got to get off of iOS, we have to expand and it sounds like you went after each one of these operating systems. You wanted to be on Android, you wanted to be on Nokia, you wanted to be on BlackBerry. I don't even know what the operating systems for those latter two were even called. But can you tell me about a little bit more about that strategy and then how it worked out for you guys? I think fundamentally, the most important step was to look outside Silicon Valley. Because the second you look outside Silicon Valley, you start seeing all these millions and billions of people who are who have completely different technology stack in their hands. The other realization we had over time is that, which is pretty strange for us in the Silicon Valley, is that many, many people around the world have only one computing device in their entire life and that is their phone for us in the silicon valley you always think okay i have a laptop i have a phone maybe i have an ipad and all of a sudden you have this collection of devices around you and then you start thinking that everybody is like that but the reality is no reality is that a lot of people only have one phone and as we saw early oftentimes that phone is not iphone or android it's something else. It's Symbian Nokia phone or, or S40 Nokia phone. So if you force yourself to look outside and realize that there are many, many people around the world who are technology consumers and they, they're just as worthy of having good products as people in Silicon Valley, you start exposing yourself to huge markets and huge opportunities. So yeah, when, when Nokia reached out, it was an instant click because they needed applications like us to really claim and we needed them because just so many people used them so i think it was a great connection it was great partnership we for years we had super good relationship with them we became one of those straws that they held on for longer than they possibly would have otherwise. Maybe we prolonged their life a little bit. Yeah, sure you did. So now that we're talking a little bit about how your product grew and, and adaption, can you tell me more about the revenue model? Was that at the forefront of your thinking or was it more of an afterthought? 
By the time I joined, that was already solved problem, more or less. But in the earlier days, the founders really played with different models. They tried to do free app, and then they experimented asking iPhone users to pay $1 to download the app, which was pretty scary step because when you go from free to paid, there's always a chance of cannibalizing your audience and losing losing your user base. So they experimented. They convinced themselves that that's not really killing the product, that the features of the product and the usefulness of the product is really greater than the price. So they started charging $1 for iPhone download, which uh, is not much, but as you get into millions of downloads, that adds up to a nice revenue stream. So that stayed like that for some time. At some point, the Android really started growing and it eventually grew much bigger than than iPhone, obviously. And right now it's probably, what, 85% of the smartphone market. So Android became really big eventually. But as Android was growing, we tried a different type of revenue, which is download the app for free, use it for a year for free, and then pay us $1 a year kind of subscription model. Now, we turned that on, but we only enforced it in a very small number of countries. Not even enforced it, we, we, we kind of nagged, please pay us, please pay us. We never, ever turned anybody off from the network. We always thought that your presence in the network and the potential for you to be attractor for some of your friends is more value to us than a dollar we can beat out of you. So we were always thinking that if you don't want to pay, okay, fine, we'll let you slide. But we will we will probably nag you in, in another month. But we only did it in a small number of countries. And then eventually we turned off, we made the iPhone free. So do we only stayed with that model with the Android subscription revenue for second year and and after that. And we also fine-tuned that stream of revenue to be more or less barely covering our expenses. Because the thinking was that we really wanted, we, we felt like we were in position to create an absolutely global leader in messaging. At some point, it was pretty clear that we were bypassing all the incumbent players and, and we, we, were, we were standing great. So we were thinking like, okay, do we want to make a lot of money right now or instead focus on the product, focus on the growth and focus on really becoming the ubiquitous household name in, in messaging? And that idea really resonated. So the thinking was, let's minimize the revenue Because with every revenue comes a lot of customer support. People cannot pay, credit cards fail, app store transactions fail, and there's just a lot of issues around payment. And the thinking was, we don't want to spend the time of our engineers and the the resources of our customer support on payments. We would rather spend it on features and user support and really making sure that our product is super, super great. So that that was kind of the mindset. And this is why by the time Facebook acquired us, you would see some articles saying like, how can Facebook acquire a company for such an enormous amount of money and the company is only doing $35 million revenue a year? Well, the truth of the story is that that was deliberate. We deliberately didn't want to raise more money for, from our users. And we did not want more revenue because we wanted more focus on the product and redirect resources to the product. We stayed relatively low-key, just essentially paying our bills with this money. And that, that worked great. That allowed us a focus to, to continue the growth and continue improving the product. Quite the investment 
comment you guys made. And there's that word focus again, one more time. Well, next question you weren't, can you tell me about venture capital? Was that harder or, or easier to raise? And, and why was that? I think that's a typical story of venture, the attempts to raise venture money. When you need them, the money the most, it's really hard to get. And by the time you don't need money anymore, there's all this huge line of investors who want to give you money. That's essentially what was happening to us. We, there are quite a few in the very early days of investors who passed on that and didn't believe in this. And as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't obvious. But then by the time I joined, we had, we were cash positive quite a bit. We were ready to hire more, we were ready to invest more in a company. So we didn't really need the money at that point anymore because the, the, the influx of new users that were bringing uh, you know, one dollar minus Apple commission to the company was pretty pretty solid. So what happened then is that there was still this stream of investors who were knocking our on our door, and the founders made a really good lo- long term decision to partner with Sequoia as probably the best known name in, in in venture investing to partner with them for strategic purposes. We didn't really need money right away. There were some risks involved in the future. If you grow really rapidly, you might run into issues with the legal and patents, and you might need some money to to really back up your uh, things other than your product and engineering. So that was getting some money from Sequoia was kind of really insurance for those foreseen things in the future. But we did not need money for payroll or, or paying our infrastructure bills. So there was a round from Sequoia in May 2011, which we kept super secret. Nobody, I think it's still leaked somewhere, but we did not make an announcement or anything. It was very, very kept secret for us to not to lose focus. It was still the same goal. Aligning with your, aligning with your kind of ability to focus and and. Keep your keep your nose to the grindstone. Work hard while uh, while there's a bunch of noise around you. Yeah, and you know what? This this was actually. You might think that I'm just being too cute with that word. It was actually super helpful. Like for instance, we we were able to live in a small unmarked office. We did not have security or anything. But even by the time we were already super successful, even by the time we were acquired by Facebook, mm-hmm. or, or around that time. We were able to go out and 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 you know get lunch, come back and work, mm-hmm. right? Don't not deal with journalists, not deal with crazy people attacking your office because they they want you to open their girlfriend account or something like this. St- stuff that that Facebook really has to has to deal with, right? We were able to avoid all of that, right? So that was mm-hmm. that was. It's hard to overestimate how important that was for for us. Keep low profile. Don't get don't play the publicity game. And that will allow you to really focus and, and, and win on a product side and on, on a user base side, not on TechCrunch articles. That was and that was not by accident. It was very clearly formulated strategy. We're keeping low profile. We're not communicating much. We, we we're almost never talk to any journalists, and we we just continue working. So that that was that, that was super important. Well, WhatsApp was acquired in 2014, as I'm sure you know. But for the listeners, it was acquired by Facebook in 2014 for 22 billion dollars, which makes it the largest acquisition of a VC-backed startup at that time. When did you learn about the deal, and and can you take me back to 2014, just sort of what the feeling in the room was like? I had a very important rollout to our front-end servers planned for that day. 
And in the morning, Jan told me to hold it and don't push it just yet. And I was pretty pissed. <laughs> that was a result of a couple of weeks' work, and I was really looking forward to that going into production. And he didn't give me any good reasons. I didn't suspect anything, honestly. I was kind of, again, too much heads down in my work. So I was like, I, I, di I didn't catch his hint, but but I was not happy that I wasn't allowed to, to, to deploy. And then uh, they kept it very secret for most of the people, even including, you know, really early people like myself. So we really learned when we got invited into a meeting room. That was the time where entire company could fit in a meeting room because we only had 50-something people. We really fit into the large meeting room. And they told us about 10 minutes before it was announced for the whole world. So we didn't have a lot of heads up. And then in, in another 15 minutes, Mark Zuckerberg and, and his team showed up, say hi. And then they went to, to do the investors call when, when they really talked about the acquisition. That was pretty surreal. It was, people did not expect it, really. I don't know if people thought about this or didn't even think about it. It was, we knew that we we're very successful. We knew that we were one of the largest services on earth. So I guess everybody sort of thought that at some point there's going to be some sort of event or exit or something. But just having this uh, great apparent success that we had at the moment was sort of enough to keep people motivated, and 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 no, nobody you know roamed the halls and and talked about how we're going to be acquired and how much everybody's going to make. That was there was no none of that really. That was pretty unexpected. It must have been a really weird day. So thanks for telling us that story. That's that's amazing. In your opinion, was it a shrewd move on the part of Facebook to pay so much money, uh, such a steep price for what was mostly a product at the time and not much of a business in terms of revenue? I think it was. I think it was an amazing move. And that was one of the kind of struggles that all of us had because we got a lot of buzz after that announcement saying that Silicon Valley has gone insane. They're paying ungodly money for, for a company that doesn't do anything, that company that nobody even knows about like why what is this whatsapp a lot of people in the u.s didn't even know that word because we were very we were very popular in, in some other countries in europe in spain especially in asia in brazil we were we were household name but here in the u.s not at all. So a lot of press was they complete is either Zuckerberg is trying to launder some money or there are crazy theories about what's going on. Yeah. So in reality, Zuckerberg purchased the largest communication system in the world. By the time they acquired us, we were about half a billion users. And uh, in the next six years, we grew to two billion. Right now, it's about two billion users. Mm -hmm. So we never, we didn't stop. We weren't a fluke. We, we were for sure the system that was about to take over the world, if not yet. And he spent about 10% of his company of the Facebook value to acquire the largest communication network in the world. I think he's got a great deal. Yes, it seems insane in terms of the amount of dollars and how unmatched was relative quiet story with how much money we were talking about. But all in all, I think that was a great, great move on, on Zuckerberg's part. And now monetization might be taking longer than expected, but there is no denying that WhatsApp is for sure the largest communication network in the world with no close competitors and it will be eventually monetized either directly or indirectly but there is no question that it's a good play long term yeah i mean that's a real master chess move right let me say some other thing the other way of looking at this acquisition is if zuckerberg didn't acquire whatsapp 
somebody else would. And maybe Google, maybe Microsoft, maybe somebody who could realize the same thing. So some of this, some part of that price is essentially opportunity cost. You're, you're paying for some to, for taking this great product off the table in terms of acquiring mm-hmm. and making sure that your competitors do not get gain that competitive edge. So it's not just some piece of property that you buy. You're really, really depriving your competition from ability to play that that card. So that that only works on a super large scale, right? That only works when you talk about one of the biggest players, right? And I think WhatsApp was one of the biggest players in communication at the time. So that that definitely played into the price. And how did things change after the acquisition? Actually, at first, things did not change at all. And I'm pretty thankful to Facebook for allowing us to operate independently for quite a long time. There was obviously some integration on on some aspects of the running the company and, and payroll and HR and, and a whole bunch of things. But the engineering and product development was pretty independent. We were not asked to do any specific features for two years. So for two years, we remained in, in our own building in Mountain View. We were not asked to move into main campus in Menlo Park. We continued running our own product team, our own engineering team, our own customer support team. After celebrations ended, we kind of continued back to work. I was able to deploy my code, I have to say. And uh, it it made it to the server, so all good. And on the other hand, we also had some benefits of joining Facebook because some of the technologies that Facebook had and some of the properties that they, they had were really beneficial for us. And and I'm again, I'm pretty thankful that Facebook kind of created that partnership and we were able to use that. A couple of examples, we were about to start rolling out the voice call product right around the time when the acquisition was closing. And they said, and we were started, to, we were ready to roll out some AWS instances uh, for relay servers and stuff like that. And when we joined Facebook, they said, why are you guys doing that? We have these data centers around the world. We have great CDN network. We, we can really help. We can do this in-house. And they did. And a couple of amazing people came over from Facebook site to, to help us do that. And this was a super successful project. So we, I'm pretty, pretty thankful that they did that. Another example is fighting the spam. This in 2014 was pretty stressful year in terms of amount of spam and abuse that was happening on our platform, which is pretty understandable when when your project becomes so big, there will be a lot of bad guys trying to abuse that. Mm -hmm. And honestly, we, we had very rudimentary ways to deal with this. And Facebook really brought us to the 21st century in terms of how to deal with this. They, we, we connected to their systems, to their uh, machine learning systems that, that help train classifiers and figure out bad patterns of usage. So we, over the next year, 2015, after, after we joined, or maybe eight, six to eight months, we almost completely removed spam and abuse from our system. That, that was just amazing. So, and again, I, if that didn't happen... I would have had much more gray hair, honestly, that because that was very stressful. Almost half of the entire server group was just fighting spam manually, nonstop. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, again, gr- great that we were able to use some of the Facebook technologies. Let me just do another small remark here. That, that's my view, which is an engineer and an engineering manager working on the WhatsApp infrastructure. Mm-hmm. There were other aspects 
of this relationship, something that I did not see immediately, something that our co-founders had to deal with. And there were some disagreements, and some of that trickled into the press later on. And obviously, not everything was completely rosy. And I really appreciate my founders for almost completely shielding us from that. They took that upon themselves to, to deal with Facebook, to detract some of the, I guess, negative inquiries that were coming in and uh, to, to let through some positive uh, partnerships and collaborations that happened with other engineering teams. So uh, th- there was a lot uh, going on that we didn't see, but the end result was that we were able for at least two years to really do our work and continue growing. And the first thing that Mark Zuckerberg said when he came in and when we talked about what's going to happen next when, when, when he acquired us, he said, you're at half billion users right now. I will not do anything until you reach a billion. So he essentially gave us a green light of going to work and, and double our size before any talk of any monetization or anything would be happening. Right. And that was a great goal. Let's reach a billion. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable place to be. And we obviously wanted to get there even before. But now with his blessing, we just continued that work. So I think everybody was pretty happy in the early days of that combined partnership. Thank you for sharing. Let's start to close this thing out. When and, and why did you decide to leave WhatsApp? I left WhatsApp in uh, 2018. There were a bunch of reasons and I cannot speak about all of them. But just a kind of backdrop to the to, to this is there was quite a bit of exodus happening. It was exactly four years after acquisition. So for a lot of people, the vesting was kind of ending. And, and for a lot of people, it was a long, long run. It was a long term. For me, it was eight years, almost exactly eight years since I started. So, you know, it's pretty grueling eight years. I I loved the journey. I loved the challenges. I learned a ton and I gained a ton. But at the end of the day, I, I was ready for a break. And so did a lot of people as well. So the company today is completely different. We Even by the time I was leaving, we were losing this small group feel. Because the company from 2016 to 2018, company increased to almost 500 headcount. And, you know, when a 500, I mean, obviously, I didn't know most most people's names and uh, it, it just felt quite different. And I understand the company needs to grow and, and, I, and I totally supported that. We did very important migration project for the infrastructure to move into Facebook data centers which took us two years of, of super hard work. And uh, we were all virtually finishing that work at that time. So it was kind of a good time to, to go and change the scenery a little bit for myself and get new blood, run things. So I think it was a good time to live. And what are you up to these days? Where I work, we could always use a, a better DevOps server type guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wearing a few different hats right now. I, I'm doing some investing and startup advising you know, as a kind of angel investor and uh, as, as uh, partner in a few different funds, which is kind of interesting because I was obviously part of the one of the most successful startups ever. But at the same time, that was eight years where I spent really head down working. And a lot of things happened 
outside our uh, walls during that time. And I just did not have much time or energy to pay attention to that. So <laughs> I, I'm really catching up right now with a lot of things that happen in parallel to WhatsApp. And uh, it's very interesting. I, I mean, I love what we did, but I also like to see other things that are happening. Blockchain and, and AI and, and complete revolution of machine learning and, and a whole bunch of other things. So uh, I'm quite excited to just talk to all these people, get exposure to all these companies and, and just get more feel about what, what Silicon Valley is outside of those uh, walls of WhatsApp that, that I spent eight years. So that's uh, head number one. I also run a philanthropic entity which I'm also super proud of and doing a lot of philanthropy, fighting anti-Semitism and doing some good things. So that's my head number two. And the head number three is maybe I should have started with that. I actually started my own company and my own project. The thinking was that I worked as an engineer and then as an engineering manager at WhatsApp, but how how good would I be at actually running the whole thing? You know, actually having having to make all these million decisions every day and, and be responsible for everything. So I am running this company right now. We actually did our MVP release yesterday. So we're I'm talking at the exciting time. We're we're right now publicly released our product and we will start promotion soon. For now, we're kind of still trying to get get it. To Polish, polish up and work out some quirks of the product. But we're up and running. We, we're called Alto Pass. It's a uh, deterministic password manager, which is an attempt to at password management to, to be more secure than traditional password managers. So it's a secure security product with kind of consumer and the, or user-facing security product. And uh, I'm uh, pretty excited about that. We've been working on that for, for a year. I have a mostly remote team and uh, have a few really smart people working for me. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting journey. All right. Well, you sound a little bit too busy to take me up on that offer. Before we get out of here, what's the best way for, for our listeners to reach you if they have any additional questions? You can find me on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Happy to answer questions. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating, preferably five stars. Thanks, Eugene, for joining the show today. Let's get you back on here soon. Thank you so much. It was, it was very informative and, and I loved hearing about the journey. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Oh, oh, oh.